Ahoy, everyone. This is Volt for October 14th, 2022. Making it easier to build distributed energy in the places where it's most needed. I'm your host, David Roberts. For decades, I've been hearing happy talk about how people in emerging economies, people who do not have access to electricity at all, or whose access is low quality and unreliable, can leapfrog the centralized grid system and move directly to a decentralized system based on solar power, batteries, and microgrids. It's a compelling idea, but for all the talk, it never seems to amount to much. There's a constant trickle of feel-good stories, but the market never seems to develop at any kind of scale. Emily McAteer learned this lesson the hard way when she helped launch Sun Edison's solar and microgrids business in India and East Africa. She quickly found that the habits and structures built up around financing large-scale energy projects are not well adapted to building thousands of small projects. It was difficult to attract capital, difficult to secure equipment at reasonable prices, and difficult to track the performance of projects once they were built. These lessons inspired McAteer to found Odyssey Energy Solutions, a company that has set out to standardize these sprawling, disparate markets. The idea is not to directly develop or build projects, but to provide a common platform where projects can be listed and described in a standardized format, where project developers and vendors can make themselves known and aggregate their orders, and where data on the operation of completed projects can be tracked. The purpose is to offer the kind of transparency and predictability that can de-risk these projects and attract more large-scale finance. I'm intrigued by the idea, so I called McAteer to discuss the potential size of this underserved market, the specific difficulties that Odyssey's platform is meant to address, and the future of electricity in emerging markets. Okay, then, without any further ado, Emily McAteer, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I've been interested in this subject and these markets for a long time and never really had a chance to do anything dedicated to them. So I'm excited to get to this. So before we talk about, you know, solutions in your business and stuff like that, let's just talk about the market itself, the addressable market, as they say. So give us a sense of sort of how many people out there completely lack electricity still and then how many also have, you know, unreliable electricity that comes and goes that could use some supplementation? How, how big is the pool of possible customers here? Well, unfortunately, it's quite big. <laughs> <laughs> the number that's being used right now is about 600 million people without any access to electricity and another 3.5 billion that don't have access to reliable electricity or power. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the people who lack electricity entirely, is that mostly in Africa or are they spread out more? Definitely global, although many of the countries that we work in in Africa do have among the lowest rates of electrification, particularly in rural areas. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as I've been in this business, I have heard a lot of happy talk about all these people who don't yet have electricity or don't yet have reliable electricity and how they're going to leapfrog over the traditional centralized fossil fuel paradigm 
into a distributed, networked, renewable energy-based system, which is all great and sounds great, but you know it's been 15 years now, and I just never hear anything but the big talk. Like I never, I never see any solutions at scale that seem to be happening. Let's talk about then why this is difficult. So you helped launch Frontier Power, which was Sun Edison's microgrid development business in India and East Africa. So you were assigned to go and work on these kinds of solutions in these kinds of places. So talk a little bit about that experience and what you learned as a result. It might be helpful first to kind of just segment the market and the types of solutions that we're talking about here. Sure. Because if you think about what it means to provide power to communities that either don't have power or don't have access to reliable power, there's sort of four solutions that can bring power. So they're at the smallest level, there's solar home systems or like solar lights. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of the most basic, you know, access to lighting. Maybe it'll power your phone and, you know, a TV. Right. And then the next type of access is usually provided by what we call microgrids or mini-grids. And that's what I was developing at Sun Edison. There's also a sector called CNI Solar that's sort of like individual solar systems for commercial and industrial applications. And then finally, you've got the grid, right? You've got the central utility grid. So at Sun Edison, we were primarily focused on microgrids, mini-grids. We were working in India and East Africa to build out a large portfolio of microgrids, which are somewhere in the range of, you know, 100 to 500 kilowatts, usually sometimes up to a megawatt. So would that involve building the individual systems and then networking them? Or were you just involved in the in the networking part? Yeah, exactly. So the most of the companies that are developing microgrids, minigrids, are building the full, not just the generation system, but the full distribution network as well, and then operating them. Mm. So they're acting as a, a mini utility. And what problems did you run into trying to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a hard business. So first of all, you're operating in some of the hardest parts of the world, right? And, and in really rural communities. I mean, I spent a lot of time just on motorbikes getting out to these communities. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine building infrastructure in them. And our insight when we were at Sun Edison was just that we were facing these frictions kind of at every step of the way, but they all kind of boil down to the same core challenge, which is that this is energy infrastructure, but developing sort of a big portfolio of many small projects is a totally different paradigm than the way energy infrastructure or any infrastructure is usually developed, which is like a massive project all at once. And so because of that challenge, like everything that we were trying to do was hard, you know, like preparing the projects so that they could then be diligenced by financiers was difficult because you have to do a ton of work for each individual project, but then you need to be doing that at, you know, at scale of thousands. Procuring equipment was hard because you're only procuring for a couple projects at a time, but again, you need to have economies of scale to get good pricing on equipment. Um, And then the real challenge is like, once you've got a, you know, say you're successful in getting tons of these projects operating, you've got this big portfolio of projects how do you make sure that you can manage them all and you can operate right. them without sending someone out to these rural communities to operate them manually? We think of the project development process as like financing, building, and operating projects. And every step of the way was just hard when we were trying to kind of fit this new type of development into sort of the traditional paradigm that we were used to. Right. And all the difficulties come back to the same basic thing, which is you're working on a bunch of small bespoke things rather than one big thing. 
Yeah, exactly. And so you said it's it's difficult to get financing for these projects. So what are the, like, if I'm a big project financier, I've got, you know, whatever, a billion dollars. Why is it difficult to pull my money into this? Like, what are my reservations? Because you need, uh, you know, the scale people are talking about, <laughs> you know, electrifying all these homes. That's a lot of money and a lot of financing that's going to be required. Yeah, I would say there's two big challenges. So the first one is related to what I was just describing. Let's say you've got $100 million to deploy. These are infrastructure assets. So you need to make sure that you understand that these projects are going to be built correctly. They're going to be operated correctly. The returns on the investment are going to be you know, close to as modeled. And you want to do that for every single asset in the portfolio. But then if you try and do that, your diligence costs just are, you know, yeah. out the roof. Uh, so you just can't sort of apply the same bespoke, customized, really intensive diligence process that you would for a single big project to each of these individual ones. So that's like the first big challenge. The second one is that this is still a nascent market. There's still not a ton of these assets out there. And we're still learning about kind of how they perform, what the financials look like. And most importantly, especially for mini grids, the, the real risk is like, do we understand if I bring power to a place that's never had access to power, how demand for that power will, what it'll look like, you know, day one and what it'll look like in year five. Right, right. It's not like developed country demand curve where you have all this data. You're literally a demand curve emerging out of nothing. Exactly. Exactly. It's not like you can just bring power because there's no power using appliances, right? right? Or like equipment. So then the question is, how quickly does it take for that households to start using appliances, businesses to come in? Part of what Odyssey does, like we're collecting as much data as we can on that and supporting, you know, sector players who also are collecting data on it. But it's still, you know, it's still there just isn't the long track record to fully understand the unit economics of these assets. Right. So big money doesn't want to come in because they're not quite sure how these things will perform over the long term. They just don't understand them very well. So long story short here is it, having encountered these frictions, your idea was not to start another project developer business or sort of get directly into this business, but to start a platform to try to ease the process overall. So you know, you mentioned the three barriers that you're trying to overcome with Odyssey as a platform. Walk us kind of through those and how Odyssey is addressing them. Yeah. So we're <laughs> we're essentially trying to address them all at once, which, you know, maybe is a good idea, maybe is a little crazy. <laughs> um, but it's that is the idea of the platform is that it's it's really end to end for the project development lifecycle. So we it covers the finance, build and operate phases of project development. And what that looks like is first a finance platform that is all about standardizing the way that these assets are prepared and diligenced mm. and therefore streamlining the investment process. And that investment could be all different types of capital. So we Odyssey really started as a, a subsidy platform. So we were helping big institutions like the World Bank and the government of Nigeria deploy large amounts of capital into many assets using our platform. But it could also look like, you know, an international bank that wants to deploy debt into these projects. So that's the first part of the platform. And then we had this realization that through the work that we were doing on the financing arm, we had an aggregation of project developers using the platform. And we could leverage this aggregation to bring together all of the individual equipment orders that they were placing and then sort of be this aggregator that places higher volume orders with suppliers so that we can bring down the pricing that project developers are getting for their equipment. 
Ah, so you get a little scale by pulling together all the developers. Exactly. The needs of all the developers. Yeah. So if you're a small project developer and you've got like three projects that you need to go procure from, you can place that order on our platform and then we'll go and we'll say, okay, we've got your orders and we've got project developer B's orders and project developer C orders. Let's, you know, consolidate them all. And then we look like a much bigger buyer, which is helpful for international suppliers. So that's the procurement side. And then finally, about a year ago, we acquired a company called FernTech that has really strong remote management and control technology. So it's a a controller that you install on site and then you can remotely monitor and control all of the aspects of your generation system so that you can do the majority of your sort of troubleshooting and management from the office rather than sending someone out to the field. And that's giving you then presumably a lot of data too on how these things are performing in the field. Yeah, exactly. And so then you can also kind of feed that back into the finance platform and say, you know, give investors confidence, hey, we're going to be monitoring these assets. We're going to be delivering key insights to you about these assets. You'll never lose sight of them. And having that full life cycle or that full kind of feedback loop means that we'll start to get better and better at forecasting these projects because we're collecting operating data from them. Right. And it also seems like even on the data side, once you're aggregating a bunch of these projects together, a little bit of the noise fades out and you can get kind of a clearer signal of this kind of average performance over time. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. One of the things that sort of, as I was reading and thinking about this, kept coming up for me is conceptually, this makes all the sense in the world. Like when you're in a chaotic market with a bunch of small projects and small vendors, and you're trying to bring big money to it, you need standardization. You need some clear expectations. You need some scale. You need some kind of commodification of the process. But then there's the reality, (laughs) which I come back to, which is, and you know, I'm not an expert in this, so you can tell me if I'm exaggerating, but it just seems like given the range of places you're talking about and cultures and the level of infrastructure, it just seems like you're going to have such an enormous variety of circumstances on the ground that I'm curious how much standardization you think you can impose with this platform. Do you know what I mean? Like how, how much is the platform going to solve and how much is going to wait for the actual projects and infrastructure in itself to sort of standardize and come along more? Yeah, you know, I think that's the needle to thread. We certainly are not going to solve all of the challenges of these markets with our platform. But even if we can get a fraction of the capital flowing that this sector needs and a fraction of sort of the projects deployed that, you know, of the total potential of these markets, I mean, that's massive. So it's not like we're out to finance and, you know, every single project out there or, you know, provide our remote management and control technology for every project. But there's so much potential in these markets and and so many low-hanging fruit of projects that our job yeah. is to make sure that the ones that do have reliable off-takers and the project developers who know what they're doing have access to this capital and have access to these markets. And is there, you know, in order for a developer to take part in your platform, are you, is it just kind of a box checking exercise? Like if they have the required information, they can do it. Is there any kind of sort of quality control You know, I just imagine like soft costs are going to be enormous uh, dealing with thousands of vendors unless you, you know, take all the steps you can to kind of minimize them. But I just wonder, like, is there any quality control and individual interaction with these vendors? Or is it just like if you come to us with this structured information, you can take part? 
Vendors as in the project developers? Right, or project developers. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, well, it's, it's a mix. So the platform is free to access for any project developer because we have a set of kind of project planning tools that we want to democratize and you know make as useful as possible to project developers. And that helps with the standardization right there because you've got all of the data modules about projects the same. They're running through the same financial models. But on the finance side, you know, we are working with our finance partners to sort of qualify project developers and, and move them through. And we're the technology that makes that a lot easier for the financier. What is the kind of rate of return that investors can expect here relative to like, you know, investing in a big solar farm? Like, what, give us a sense of kind of the scale of, of returns. Is this an attractive, assuming you can standardize it somewhat and scale it up somewhat, is this an attractive investment opportunity? Like what are the kind of returns relative to other possible clean energy investments? In a lot of cases, the returns are higher than sort of a, other investments, partly because there's the market is so untapped and there's a lot less competition right. than you see in U.S. markets. Right. So, um, yeah, and, and obviously like higher risk, higher returns. So why we're so excited about the opportunity in emerging markets is that the unit economics make a lot of sense and sort of the macro dimensions of these markets. So like these projects, you know, this energy infrastructure needs to be developed anyways, and often it's the lowest cost solution. Or in places where the grid is unreliable, backup power is just a, a requirement to operate. You know, in the U.S. often like adding renewables is kind of a nice thing to do, and it helps with decarbonization of the grid, or maybe there's a little savings. But in these markets, it's often a necessity. And have you had any... I guess I'm wondering sort of what problems you've run into so far. Have you had problems with project developers not delivering on what they say they're going to do or vendors, you know, dealing with such a variety of small customers and vendors and project developers? Have you had any quality control issues or has this was this kind of ready to happen and just needed a seed and there was a lot of uh, potential there already? I mean, there's a million and one challenges. You know, I, I would say the biggest challenge we face is just projects not getting off the ground. Yeah. Because our business works if we're supporting projects that are getting developed and we're, you know, getting financing, then you need to obviously be moving a project forward if you're at the procurement stage and we're helping you procure. So the biggest challenge we face is like, you know, various things happening so that a project gets delayed or or doesn't end up happening. You know, there's all different types of stuff happening in these markets that can lead to a project delay. One of the biggest things we're dealing with now is just some of the foreign exchange um, challenges in the markets where we work. And so that's making it difficult to even buy equipment. Um, in Nigeria, project developers are having trouble changing their Naira into dollars so they can purchase from international suppliers or right. you know, we can purchase on their behalf. So those are the challenges that the project developers are navigating and then you know we're experiencing as we try and support them. And is the supply chain screwed up for these two like it is for everything else? Yeah, yeah, of course. So like really long lead times on key solar equipment is a, a challenge for getting the projects off the ground. Give us a sense of how long this thing has been running and sort of how many projects are involved now. Like how close are we toward the kind of standardized, robust, scaled up market that you envision? Like what sort of stage of progress would you say you're at? Well, it depends. So, you know, we have different parts of the platform. And so we have about, you know, a thousand projects that we're monitoring on the asset management side. 
And that's growing pretty quickly. And so we're starting to get a lot of good insights from those projects. The other metric that we measure is the number of project developers on the platform, which is mm-hmm. about 1,500. And then the total sort of size of funding or facilities that are using the platform to deploy capital. And that is a, at about $1.3 billion. Um, mm. But that's all different types of capital, right? Subsidy programs, government debt programs, commercial capital. So yeah, lots of different kind of metrics. But I think what we're really excited about and like where we're headed is that we have, you know, every project getting financing, moving through the procurement phase, and then getting this remote management control technology kind of in that order and and having the full spectrum of support that they need. Yeah. So I guess one of the things I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around is the scale, the potential scale here. So say you have a thousand projects that have been built and you're now monitoring the performance of like, what could that number be in five years or, or 10 years? Like how many sort of like potential projects are out there? I want to sort of get a sense of like, is a thousand a lot? Is that covering a lot of a market? Is that just a beginning, tiny fraction of what's possible? I mean, the market itself is just very untapped. I mean, we need hundreds of thousands of these projects built in order to sort of fill the energy gap in emerging markets. So sure, a thousand projects is, I mean, that's a great start. Uh, It's a sizable amount of the market and projects that are being developed today. But in general, like every single stakeholder in this ecosystem needs to be scaling a hundred X, a thousand X where we are today. Right. This is a a question that may be incoherent. So just (laughs) tell me if so. But when I think about markets full of small operators and I think about efforts to kind of standardize and do kind of quality control and make things more predictable for big investors to come in, you know, I think about some of the perils of that. Like my wife is in coffee and she does a lot of traveling and working with small vendors in in Africa and Colombia and various countries. And one of the things that she's told me about is kind of the fair trade standard, which in some sense is sort of like trying to standardize and commodify certain practices so that, you know, kind of the wealthy coffee buyers in the West who want the nice coffee will have a reliable way to get it. But another thing she said has happened is that the bureaucracy around fair trade has kind of grown up to the point that it's actually quite a hassle now to get fair trade certification. And it's having the effect of kind of boxing out lots of small vendors and sort of, you know, creating an impetus toward consolidation, you know, and bigger and bigger players starting to dominate that market, which is, you know, somewhat contrary to the spirit of the thing, which was to support the small vendors. So that's a very roundabout way of saying, like, I see the need to standardize these things and to have some standard metrics and things like that. But do you worry about small local either project developers or vendors kind of getting boxed out of this? Or are you making efforts to sort of encourage local businesses, local participation? Or is that whole set of issues on your radar at all? So my philosophy and the way I think about this is that project developers have so much on their plate, like so much hard work, right? But if you think about a mini grid developer, they are identifying communities that need power. They're going into these communities. They're having conversations with the local government. They are meeting with all of the community members and trying to understand how those community members would use power just to even get to the project development stage where they're then designing a system and going through everything else. So our job is to try and make the parts of that process that can be standardized easier, right? Like 
maybe they don't need to start from scratch. And this is what I was doing at Sun Edison. I was just building so much stuff from scratch and knowing that others were doing the same thing and that technology could be useful there. So like everyone's sort of using similar processes to forecast demand. Let's give them tools to do that. And then they can sort of add their own assumptions into those tools, which might be like their, you know, that piece would be relying on their market knowledge and their unique experience. So we're certainly not trying to create this sort of like one size fits all mold in any way. We're just trying to standardize the things that can kind of make the process a little bit more streamlined and then leave that really sort of nuanced work that project developers need to do based on their experience in the markets to developers. Give a sense of the scale of kind of the savings. Like I can see the attraction of this for project developers, obviously, to just have some of this work taken off and some of this stuff commodified. But at the current scale you're working at, like what as a small project developer, how much would I save by ordering my equipment through this aggregated process versus ordering it just for myself? Like what are the scale of savings possible? And I assume that the savings you can save more and more the more people are involved in this, the bigger your orders get, basically. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're still at early stages. So the obviously the scale we have is not as big as, as it will be in the coming years. And even at the scale that we're at, we're seeing savings of up to 20% and we're targeting 30%. So there is there is significant room to have cost savings here. We also do offer equipment financing, which is very helpful to project developers. So we've got a fund that sits next to our procurement arm that actually pays for the equipment directly. And then the project developers pay back in 12 to 24 months. So we're trying to kind of solve two pain points at once. One is you know, the price of this equipment and two is working capital constraints that are stopping project developers from being able to even aggregate within their own operations, right? Order for the next six projects rather than right. just one project at a time because that's what cash allows. In operating these things now for a while, what have we learned about these demand curves that sort of, <laughs> you know, materialize out of nothing? Like it's it's fascinating to me and obviously like my speculations as a, you know, uh, affluent white guy sitting here in Seattle about what people would do given electricity having never had it are, you know, all but worthless. Like have you learned, what have you learned about these demand curves? Like is it, is there more robust demand than you thought or less or like are they, are they being used at different times and ways than you thought? Like what, what have we learned about how these projects are used once they're built? I think that the biggest learning from sort of the early stages of the mini grid market is that making sure that there is what we call productive uses of electricity in the community is really important. And often that looks like the project developers themselves offering sort of a, a financing for productive use equipment. There's a number of sort of subsidy programs that we run on the platform specifically aimed at supporting project developers and doing that. But there's sort of a realization that if you're going to bring the supply of power, you need to also support the demand of power. Interesting. So they're trying to sell kind of like, here's some electricity and then here's some stuff to use the electricity? Yes. And particularly what the reason we call them productive uses is it's not just kind of like TVs and fans in the home. It's more kind of industrial applications. So things that can run, for example, during the day when the sun is shining and use the lower cost power so that you're not having, you know, these just these massive spikes draining the batteries from residential households all turning their power on in the evening. Kind of as a side question, do all of these projects involve batteries? Or like are they mostly solar and and storage 
packages now or, or what's the kind of balance there? What I've just been describing is, is mini grids and those are almost all, yes, solar and storage and um, a diesel generator for occasional backup. We also support commercial industrial solar and that doesn't necessarily always have a, a battery. That could just be sort of like rooftop PV. Right. But in like your rural village situation, you'd have a battery. Batteries come along with it. Yeah. Everything about this makes total sense to me. And it seems like something that, you know, the participants in these markets themselves would be quite excited to have. So what it, what do you see as kind of the landmines here, the problems you might run into as you're expanding? Like what what could go wrong here? I mean, the underlying sort of risk profile of these assets, right? If we're trying to get them financed and we're trying to procure for them, there needs to be sort of comfort with the international markets of these of these assets. And that can look, that risk profile can be, you know, hey, we haven't seen a lot of these assets before. We don't know how demand's going to grow. Or if we're CNI projects, it's the, can we underwrite the off-taker, right? Like, are there enough off-takers that, you know, we know we'll keep paying for this power and it's as solid a PPA as one that you'd see in the U.S.? We can only do so much to provide support to project developers and standardize and aggregate and all of that. But at the end of the day, the most critical piece of the puzzle is, can we de-risk these assets so that they can get financed by commercial players that want to? Right. And do we have any, you know, for those outside the business world and the, and the money finance world, is there an easy way to sort of measure like what is currently, if I'm a big bank or whatever, I'm sitting on a billion dollars, I could invest it in a few big projects or I could invest it in this. Is there a way of measuring the sort of risk differential, like how much riskier these are currently? Um, I don't know if there's like a scale or a metric or something. Yeah, I think you you model out the risks and then you model out sort of the internal rate of return on the projects, essentially, or the expected internal rate of return on the projects. At the end of the day, everything comes down to how much did it cost to build it and then how certain are the revenues. And so if you're building utility scale project and you're selling that into the grid, you can kind of be certain that, you know, that contract to sell power into the grid is going to be upheld and, and you'll have a buyer of the kilowatt hours you produce. And a big reason that market has grown so quickly is that there are so many of those now that it's very well understood what the risk profile is. Like there's just a million examples. Yeah, exactly. And so then if you if you kind of go down, right, and you look at smaller projects, if you're in commercial industrial projects, then the real risk is, okay, is the customer that I'm contracting with, which is going to be, let's say, a retail chain or a mm-hmm. shopping mall or something, can I trust that they're going to keep buying power? Right. And then if you go to microgrids, it's like, there isn't an offtake agreement. There's no power purchase agreement. It's just, are people going to use power right? if they get connected? And also is like, is the project going to be maintained? And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm thinking some of these are just, you know, villages. It's not like they have local, you know, solar maintenance businesses <laughs> to set up there. Like, is, is that a challenge? Just finding kind of the staffing and time and just the sort of habits necessary to maintain these systems, is that proving to be a problem? Because this is something I've heard from a lot of, you know, a lot of people in this area is that like a lot of big, excited philanthropy money goes in, they build these pretty projects. And then like a month, you know, a couple months later, they find out no one flipped the switch or no one's cleaned them or, or something like that. Like how big of a issue is that? Well, most of the projects in our platform are, are developer and operator of the project. So the, the companies are owning and operating them. Right. And so they're on the hook for maintaining them. And that's why we felt it was so important that we offered this remote management and control technology because 
you simply can't scale if you are, you know, needing to send someone into the field to make sure everything's working. And so our job is to provide them the technology that they need in order to manage the fleet as remotely as possible, but also know right away if, you know, something's not working. We also focus on automated, what we call logic loops. And so these are sort of algorithms you can set that say, okay, if this happens with this component on the generation system, do, you know, why with this other component? And so then you can start getting the grids operating as optimally as possible to bring down operating costs as well. Because once you've invested, you know, obviously the big risk there is our operating costs going to grow beyond what we modeled and kill the returns of the project in that way. Yeah. Like I don't have a good sense of how much maintenance day-to-day operations and maintenance can be done remotely. Like, can you, I mean, obviously you probably can't eliminate, you know, the need for someone at some point to go physically and look at the thing, but can you get down pretty low? Like, can you do most of the work remotely these days? A lot of it. Yeah. I mean, you can really like, we, you can get super granular in our system and look at every single component of the generation system and they all send data. So you can get a ton of data of what's happening and often troubleshoot remotely, or at least know exactly what, if you do need to go fix something, you're sending someone out with the right information, the right person out. You know, you're not sort of just starting from scratch by just sending someone out and say, hey, poke around. You you kind of know what the issue is already. As a way to wrap up, I'm sort of curious to get you maybe speculating (laughs) a little bit. I mean, obviously, there's enormous appetite for these projects and a big untapped market for these projects. I think that's pretty clear and and pretty well demonstrated already. But I'm sort of curious about your thoughts about the larger debate about leapfrogging. There are people who will argue these projects are fine. Having light is better than having no light. You know, like having a washing machine is better than having no washing machine. But as these places grow and develop and become sort of industrialized nations, you're going to have to go to the grid, the big grid. That's the only way to support kind of a modern industrialized economy. So in that sense, uh, these distributed projects are kind of a stopgap stepping stone to big grids. And then, of course, you have, you know, this kind of true believers who say no, that you can just start small, expand, do your microgrids, connect up your microgrids, and you never have to go to the giant centralized grid paradigm. This is obviously a huge question, but where do you sort of come down on that? I mean, obviously you're a believer in the distributed stuff. You wouldn't have devoted your career to it, but do you see um, that leapfrogging story? Are you a believer in that? I mean, I have to be a believer to be in the business I am, (laughs) but I do think that the leapfrogging metaphor is a little bit too binary. Hmm, In my mind, it's not going to be like, okay, all development on the grid is going to stop and then we're going to do all distributed renewables. Both the grid and distributed renewables are going to play a role. And it's really going to come down to the unit economics. Like in a given situation, does it make sense to build another transmission line or to build a, you know, a power plant on site? That decision is going to be made thousands and thousands of time until we get to a place where the grid is serving power in the right places and distributed renewables are serving power in the right places. And the thing is, like, there's going to be a lot more sort of symbiotic relationships between distributed renewables and and the private operators that are building them and the central utility um, and the grid. So to give you an example, a a growing market in Nigeria is this concept of interconnected mini grids. And those are a lot of the projects that are on our platform, which is a mini grid that's built in the territory of the distribution company. Mm -hmm. But it's actually 
more efficient for the mini grid developer to service those customers through a mini grid than for the distribution company to do so. And so there's a relationship between the mini grid company and the distribution company, an agreement that those customers will be served with a different energy source. And maybe there's even sort of buying and selling between the mini grid and the the grid. So it's really not going to be an either or. It's going to be like a, it's going to be an all hands (laughs) approach. And obviously in these places that just have unreliable electricity, in a sense, the grid's already there halfway there, but not quite doing its work. So in a sense, it's going to have to be symbiotic in those places. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That was always the model that made sense to me, which is do what you can locally, right? Sort of maximize your local resources and then have the big grid there as as backup. So you need less big grid if you have distributed energy doing most of the work, but you still have it doing its main thing, which is reliable around the clock backup. Yep, exactly. You know, you're talking about these thousands of decisions like on the unit economics, is it better to extend the central grid here or to build something local here? But, you know, as we know, those unit economics change. And part of what I hear people worried about, especially sort of the distributed, the leapfrog enthusiasts, (laughs) part of what they seem to be worried about is that the unit economics of central grid building do not appear to be changing or, or even seem to be going up, getting more difficult. But the unit economics of distributed renewables and networked microgrids are headed down, even now. Like this is part of what you're involved in, right? Like this is sort of the whole impetus of your project is to bring down the unit economics of these things. And sort of the, you know, the leapfrog people will say, given time and scale, you know, it's just like solar versus coal or whatever, like given time and scale, inevitably solar is going to be cheaper. And they say the same thing, like given time and scale, inevitably this distributed stuff is going to be cheaper, but we're just making these, you know, we just have these sort of vested interests trying to make these decisions, you know, earlier than they need to based on pessimistic forecasts. So do you think that it's true that the kind of unit economics of distributed energy are going to follow a cost curve in the same way that the unit economics of like solar and wind itself have done? Or do you sort of envision a kind of plateau? Again, very huge and difficult question (laughs) to answer about the future, but you know, feel free to speculate wildly. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's no question that the costs are going to keep coming down uh, and then that'll open up more and more opportunities where distributed energy projects are the lowest cost option for electrifying an area. There's a partner of ours called Cross Boundary that did a great report on this and kind of looked at today in a number of places, what is the lowest cost option for electrifying communities and found, you know, there's just, can't remember what the number was, hundreds of thousands of places where mini grids was the lowest cost option. And Mm. I think that's only going to continue to grow as the cost of mini grids come down. What's happening now is basically efforts to accelerate that. So the, the, one of the biggest programs that we run on the platform is called the Nigeria Electrification Project, which is essentially a subsidy for every single household that's connected to a mini grid. Huh. What that's doing is just improving unit economics, right? And making it sort of make more sense for a project developer to go into an area, especially a rural area that may not have made economic sense without that subsidy and and electrify it sooner to sort of accelerate that process. Does that mean there are like a bunch of distributed solar microgrids being built in Nigeria right now? Like, is that a big wave happening or is it a trickle? Is it just a few pilot projects? Like... This is something I come back to and over and over again. Like I've been hearing talk about this for so long. Is it starting to scale up? Are we starting to see something like a wave of projects? 
it really is starting to scale up. I mean, even five years ago when I was first getting started in this market, there was just a handful of mini grids in the entire country of Nigeria. And now, you know, there's this program has fostered many more project developers building these projects, tons more projects in the pipeline. I mean, I think everyone would want to see it going even faster, but it's it's been a total shift in the landscape just in the time that I've been kind of working in Nigeria. Interesting. Yeah. This is all fascinating. I love talking about platforms and this seems like the sort of paradigm example of where a platform is needed <laughs> or some, mm-hmm. you know, or some platform and standardization is needed. So it'll be really fascinating to see how this goes. Thanks for coming on and talking about it and good luck with your expansion. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.